0: Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm joined today by Trek Glowacki from Groupon. Hey, Trek. Hi, how's it going? Good. So this is the first sort of Ember-focused uh, episode that I'm going to do. I've been, cool. I've been teasing for a bit because I've been uh, increasingly obsessed with Ember. And uh, decided, I think, last week or the week before that I would do a whole series as I get uh, more and more capable with, uh, with Ember, and you were the first to uh, raise your hand and say that you'd come on, so thank you for that. Not a problem. I, I love talking about Ember, so it's a good match. Right, and for all those that are, are Rails fans, don't get all worried. This is, you know, my fascination with Ember is tied to my fascination with Rails, so uh, it'll be a bit of both. But
1: it's, uh, That's the gateway drug. That's how my fascination started, too.
0: I know. Yeah, I, well, we'll, well, we'll get to talk about that. But first, let's, uh, let's do some introductions. So why don't you give, uh, why don't you give me your background?
1: Sure. Uh, so my name is Trek. Um, I'm a software engineer at Groupon in Chicago. Um, and I also do Rails development. Uh, not as much these days, because I've been doing mostly client-side. Um, but I've been doing Rails development since well before pre-1.0. Uh, so I learned Rails first uh, Thanksgiving break 2004 uh so 10 years now um and then i got into ember uh because my clients i was doing client based work and clients kept asking for like more and more rich interactions on the website basically they'd say things like oh uh you know we should do it like this like facebook has and i came to realize like i, I just needed to get better at javascript and so i uh got into ember and when was that uh that would have been probably late 2011 i think
0: oh wow so yeah that's also early
1: yes I am a chronic early adopter Uh, I'm also I have tended to bet well on uh, sort of really solid long lasting technologies that was Uh, my
0: next question so anyone that's an early adopter (laughs) has some really bad bets like you couldn't it seems unbelievably improbable that you would have bet on Rails and Ember and not some other really bad bets too True. That is very very true. So, uh, so do, you any, actually, do you have any good ones? Uh,
1: uh, like what? What's the cool next thing? Uh, no, or what's okay. in the
0: graveyard? Things that you thought were the cool oh, next thing, or that you um, really were off on.
1: I thought CouchDB was really interesting, uh, just because it was like it spoke HTTP, it spoke JSON, um, and that just kind of never really took off. And then things that I've been totally wrong on. I was I was very anti Node when Node first came out, mm. um, and now I'm I'm quite a big fan. Part of that has to do with the the maturity of Node as a as a platform. Um, and part of that has to do with like upcoming changes to JavaScript that I think are going to make it like a, a really rock solid language compared to what it is right now.
0: Now, did you not like the idea of node? Cause you didn't like JavaScript or, um, but what was the, what was sort of the origin of the, <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> so the dislike? The yeah.
1: Um, I, so, I mean, my, I've been doing software development for like, uh, 13 years now, 14 years. Um, so I have, you know, I've dabbled in a lot of things and, um I, I saw the the definite need for a better asynchronous story. I mean Ruby's asynchronous story is not great. Um well, a little better now, but was not great in like, you know, 2010 or eleven when Node was out. It's coming Probably
0: up. still not great.
1: It's I I was being politic, but yes, Ruby's async story is is pretty poor. Um uh but there are other languages that do a really good job with async. Uh, Java does a really good job with async, mm. Erlang does a really good job with async, and it just seemed like why do we need to develop a, a brand new thing, especially one based on a language that is um let's say, aesthetically unpleasing uh, when we have so many good languages and and runtimes out there that can do async really, really well. Um, But uh, I I have since learned JavaScript, and maybe I've just become frog-boiled on it. I don't find it as distasteful as I used to, especially with uh, a lot of the new ES6 and ES7 features coming out.
0: So I just made a choice about JavaScript. So I I think that, there, there's nothing intellectual that changed about my opinion about JavaScript. Like I still dislike. Like if I was to write down what I liked and disliked about the language, I don't think that my opinion has evolved all that much. But my emotion about it's evolved. So I, I decided that I was going to like it. That's uh, that's that's insane. I mean, you uh, can, don't have a choice anymore. It's
1: it's everywhere. It yeah. Is so I the, said it it is it's the language.
0: It's like disliking your brother or something, right? Like I mean, like. <laughs> Like I don't know if if you decide you want to sort of be a good family member and and you just decide you're going to like your family, I guess.
1: And I, I think more and more Rails people are kind of coming to that conclusion. I um, mean, Rails has historically been uh, not necessarily anti-JavaScript, but very much of the mindset like, let's this is a horrible environment, let's encapsulate you in in, in as much Ruby as possible. Um, and I remember you know RJS was a thing, and now TurboLinks is a thing, and it just seems like there's like. Constantly a rail's plan around getting people to not write javascript, and uh at le- at least for me like three or four years ago, it was just like I just had to learn javascript i can't I can't yeah. keep hiding from it unfortunately
0: well I, part of my strategy was I stopped writing CoffeeScript. so I, I was I was okay at coffeescript, and I think it's actually quite nice, but I decided like if i don't know if you've ever gone out to a restaurant with a vegetarian that <laughs> is sort of fixated on buying. And my wife's a vegetarian. So this isn't a dig, but sometimes uh, a vegetarian will be quite interested in in ordering an item that is like a, a meat centric meat concept, but as a vegetarian, which I think is a weird strategy. Yeah, like, for I really because sure. I'm like, well, wait a sec. I mean, you, it seems like it's better to just to embrace whatever the heck it is you're doing. And uh, if you're going to go vegetarian, then like, don't try to eat chicken. That's sort of actually vegetables.
1: Yeah, I was, I was never a huge CoffeeScript fan, um, mostly because when I jumped into it, being a crazy early adopter of things, it was lacking a lot of what I would consider like totally necessary functionality, like source maps. Um, so it seemed fine until you hit an error, and then it was like, I can't find where the actual code I wrote exists that caused this error.
0: And that's still that, the case in Rails.
1: Yes, that is still the case in Rails. And I, for me, that's just like, that's a non-starter. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I live in, in Chrome and Firefox debug mode um, to not be able to have errors reflected in the actual source code that I'm looking at is, I mean, I'm totally lost. I don't know. You have to, like, fall back to an earlier era of debugging where you just log and log and log and log. And that just feels uh, feels so amateurish, I guess, or just, like, not mature compared to the full debugging tools you have access to.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so I decided that I was going to like it, like... Um, regardless of of whether I actually like the features and forget the parts that I missed from Ruby or other languages that I prefer better and like it. And it's worked. I actually do like it now.
1: And there's a lot of cool new stuff coming, which I think is fantastic. I think if you were a CoffeeScript fan, you're being put into a pretty ugly position right now where um, the core language is getting new features that don't necessarily match with their sort of equivalent CoffeeScript uh, implementations. And now you're going to have to make a decision about um, you know, does CoffeeScript update? Is it going to be like a new version of CoffeeScript that is not backwards compatible, but is forwards compatible with uh, ES6 and seven? Or do you just bail on CoffeeScript entirely? Or do you just never, never touch the new JavaScript stuff?
0: Well, I've bailed on it entirely. Yep. That's my That's, call on it.
1: That would be my recommendation for people to uh, please send hate mail to trek at groupon
0: <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, I mean, the thing is, is I like CoffeeScript. I just sort of felt like that was the smart choice. Yeah, for sure. Um so I've got a good uh a Groupon on a side. Do you mind if I share? Oh, it? Oh, go for it. So, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever tweeted something that you think is hilarious and like no one responds and you wonder if like they were asleep or it wasn't that hilarious. Oh yeah, all the time. So I somehow happened on a Groupon for a SkyMall gift certificate the other day, <laughs> which I think is the fun like you know how I don't know if Groupon's still about like the funny copywriting ethos, mm-hmm. but back at first, um uh, and I mentioned before we started to record that I used to, uh, used to work in the same building that Groupon is, uh, or was headquartered out of. And so I, I kind of got used to that vibe and I actually thought that that Groupon for a SkyMall gift certificate was just part of the shtick. Like I thought Andrew actually may still be working in, you know, the sixth floor or something writing crazy stuff. Uh, but, uh, anyway, so I put that out there and, uh, no one else thought that it was so hilarious. That's funny because our, our goods department does get compared to Sky Mall quite frequently. <laughs> like, oh, no. I know. Like it's, maybe they're are they being ironic? Like, uh, is this a joke for me? Maybe that, that does, was just a joke for me. It
1: does seem like something we do. For a while, we had a like one million dollar gemstone on the goods site, <laughs> um, and I, <laughs> I was like what? And then we sold three of them. I, I'm like, this has this has to be just part of the humor division. And I went and asked, and everyone's like, no, that's a real gemstone. That's actually an amazing value for that gemstone. <laughs>
0: yeah well the way that i found it is i wondered if it was a thing i forget what conversation with a friend caused this but i said i wonder if if like worlds have collided and groupon <laughs> and sky mall have somehow ever had interaction with each other or is that like a clark kent superman kind of <laughs> problem <laughs> well it turns out they had i just i just uh, googled for it and hilarious all right so uh let's talk uh, let's talk ember okay uh I'm going to give you my uh very short story about uh how I got into Ember because I haven't told it on the podcast before and then we can dive into uh some other things. So I had my experience like I think everyone that gets into Ember uh sounded similar to yours, which is I I kept seeing things that you know that felt like uh native apps on the web. And then I saw the things that I was made the applications that I had made and they just didn't feel the same. And uh you know, started to wonder, man, am I, am I in some sort of like rails box where I'm just sprinkling JavaScript in when I could be interacting with the events of the user's sort of actions in a much more rich way. And, uh, you know, so there's nothing even interesting about that story. But uh, when I started to read about, um, how Ember approaches that goal and sort of its, its core philosophy, which is all about the, the URL, but beyond that saying, you know, the, the fixation with server generated pages is sort of silly. I, it just, it worked for me. Like that spoke to me. It seemed like a completely sensible point of view. Um, and anyways, decided that, uh, it had been too long since I had learned a brand new framework and, uh, have, uh, have dived in. So I'm like a month into learning Ember right now.
1: That's a good, I mean, that's uh, I feel like that's a lot of people's story. Um, congratulations on having made the jump away from thinking that server rendering pages is like the only pattern that you can use. Um, that's that's probably like the number one hurdle we have in getting people to uh, buy into Ember and then also understand its programming concept, its sort of programming model, is uh, everyone has lived for so long in this world of the server generates a page and then JavaScript sort of, you know, wakes up and looks around and sees like, here's here's the list of of, you know, places I'm supposed to go attach behavior, uh, does this page have any of those for me to attach behavior on? Right. Um, and it's really hard for us to get people to understand that, like, well, like, that's not really client-server, and client-server in, in many situations, especially when you're writing an application, is a really, really good pattern. Um, the best analogy I have is I say, like, imagine you're writing in, uh so Rails 5 is going to come out, and it's going to have uh, Turbo Cocoa, and you'll no longer write iOS applications. Because it's really complicated, right? Like, you have your Rails app, and then you have a whole separate app written in another language. It's really, really hard. And it's not a great language. It's not as good as Ruby. Wouldn't it be great if there was Turbo Cocoa, And in one project, you would define the API, and then Ruby would write a, a, an iOS app for you. And that iOS app would basically load a page, and then if someone interacted, it would go back to, to Rails and be like, hey, they did this. What should I do now? Um, and you explain it that way, and people are like, yeah, that sounds crazy. But that's how we develop it in the browser, right? Like, that's the that's the primary programming paradigm. Uh, well, it's, fun- it's,
0: it, it's funny to hear you say it that way, because my, I don't, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience in life and in other areas, too, but I went for a long time thinking that it was sensible to have, not just sensible, like, more sensible and obviously sensible, to have the server generate everything. Mm-hmm. And then one day that became ridiculous to me. And now it's was, ridiculous. So was it, was it cause you had to deal with form elements? You know, I, I think it, <laughs> it be, exactly. It, I think it became ridiculous because it like, as soon as like, as soon as I had made an, a hello world with Ember, that was, um, it was more than just sort of doing something the server could do, but rather was responding to the events on the, in the browser. Mm -hmm. It, 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 the idea that you ever would like communicate to a server in Virginia, that event, um, you know, to change the page started to feel just completely ridiculous when, you know, either my computer or my phone is, is super powerful. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's zero latency
1: for the longest time. We've like every web interaction has had basically two supercomputers involved, one on the client and one on the server and the one on the client we don't do anything with. Right. Even like mobile phones, like, Right, everyone carries around a 1990 grade supercomputer in their pocket and doesn't think about it.
0: Well, that's a good question. So I don't know if you have uh, used Heroku at all, but I wonder what the the sort of processing power uh, of a like an iPhone six is compared to a Heroku Dino.
1: I would guess the iPhone six is better than a Heroku Dino, to be honest.
0: I know, I think so too. I mean, yeah. it's got to be yeah, like they've got to be close. But I would bet on. I'd put yeah, I'd bet on the iPhone.
1: Yeah, I mean the iPhone. I, I played some really sweet games on my iPhone. It's a it's an impressive
0: little computer. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to think about it. Like, could could I imagine a Heroku Dino rendering as well as the iPhone does when I play like NBA Two K Fifteen? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. So anyway, so so that was uh that was sort of my experience too. And now I'm sort of in the opposite opposite situation where I used to think that, like, I I think I subscribed without thinking enough about it to this idea that if if the application is written in JavaScript that it breaks the web, whatever the hell that means. Mm-hmm. And now I, I don't really understand why I ever thought that. And in well, fact, I, I think it's a little bit, I think it's sort of a, um, a handicap on the industry that, that any of us think that.
1: I think so that, that became sort of industry words of wisdom, uh, you know, early, late line, the late nineties, early two thousands, right? Like JavaScript just breaks the web. Um, and I think at the time that was actually a true statement, mostly because uh, it was a really bad runtime, very poor performance. Um, so you, you you likely would get as good performance going to the server for a bunch of actions as you would mm-hmm. on the client. Um, but also, uh, like, our ability to manipulate the URL didn't exist. And for the longest time, even when the browser shipped with the ability to manipulate the URL in, in a sort of consistent fashion, um, doing that consistently... Uh, in a in a in a stateful application is incredibly complicated. Um, I'm actually I'm I'm amazed at how well Ember's router works. I've it's uh, there there are basically two routing systems on the client side that I've ever seen uh, function in a way that seems seamless to me. Uh, Ember's, uh, which took a lot of work by one of our core team members, um, and then the React router that Ryan mm-hmm. Florence put together, which is basically taking our concepts and porting them over to uh, to React. Um, and I, I think they'd, like we have, we have nailed some sort of underlying primitive that allows URLs to behave. And, and to most users, they see the page change, they see the URL update, they have literally no idea where that, where that execution is taking place. Um, so I think we're finally in a world where JavaScript does not uh, break the web, except uh, most people are really bad about error handling. So an error will yeah. happen. And then uh, you know, what, what the user typically sees is the page just doesn't do anything.
0: Yep. Yeah, I agree. And I, but I think that that's a, that doesn't seem fundamental to me. That seems yeah. like the sort of thing that'll get worked out in the next, you know, 12, yeah. 18 months. Yep. It's a totally
1: solvable problem. And it's the equivalent of, uh, of, you know, like you are using an application and then suddenly you see the rails 500 page, they right? yeah. Like they could do They could do a better job of handling errors than showing the rails 500 page.
0: Yep. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, we'll get into this in a bit, a bit more, but Ember does a pretty good job of providing, um, the developers with the ability to sort of rescue that situation relatively gracefully. So, I mean, that's what I mean by if, if you see that in an Ember app, for example, it's just, it's just that the app is early on and you know, it's, it's not that it's that hard to get that right. Yep. All right. So let's talk learning Ember. Sure. Uh, So you've, you've, uh, you've known Ember for a long time now. And mm-hmm. I just learned it, so I feel like I, I have a fresh perspective. And, and I'm just learning it, right? I'm 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 uh, somewhere in the uh, past the beginner stage, before the uh, probably even advanced intermediate stage. Um, it's a very interesting process to learn Ember. Do you have like what's your point of view about what the biggest hurdles are in uh, uh, in someone's uptake?
1: So they, th- those have changed over time. Uh, when I first started using Ember. Um, and so my, my first interaction with Ember was, again, you know, clients needing sort of richer interactions that Rails couldn't provide easily, um, and, then, and then me reaching for the, the existing tools at the time, of which I guess backbone was basically the only thing, maybe knockout. Um, and neither of these really, I was coming from this Rails world where there's just like a ton of structure, a ton of patterns about how an application should be organized uh, which is great because i 'll be honest i 'm not that great of an engineer it 's perfectly i 'm perfectly happy to follow best best practices advice when I see them um, and then you know jumping into javascript where it 's just literally the wild West, do whatever you want and not even like do whatever you want because um, you know nothing 's been made yet but that that is like the ethos of of JavaScript or was at the time of like you have many small packages and you put them together in the way that you would like to put them together right um, and so I was trying out the various things, and I tried out Ember. And Ember at the time was uh, was a lot like what React is today, just a view layer. Um, and it was a view layer that was uh, totally undocumented, and yet Tom and Yehuda were heavily promoting it as a better way to write applications. But like, how? Right? Like, okay, I, I, I believe <laughs> right. you. Yes, all right, sure. Yehuda, you were, you know, you've been Rails. I, I'm buying into that. jQuery was great. You're on the core team of that. Like, you clearly have a way of picking winning technologies. And now you're telling me Ember going to, you know, change things, but how do I use this thing? Um, and so I was just complaining about Ember uh, on, on Twitter a lot. And he, he just stopped me and said, Listen, like, here's all the things that need to exist for the browser to become an actual runtime for applications. Uh, point me to where you think, uh, what project you think is furthest along to get to those goals. And I was like, Well, I mean, no one is. Ember's about the closest, and you're not even that close. He's like, Right. So uh, get in and help.
0: And, uh, <laughs> I like I, that. So we kind of called you out on it.
1: Yep. It was, I mean, it was the the less passive aggressive version of pull request welcome. It was more the like, hey, we would love to have your help. Come on, come along. Tell us how we can have you help us. Good. Yeah. Um, so the way I began to contribute in the way that I learned Ember uh, was by documenting it. Um, so I would basically um, go into the source code, which is mostly undocumented, uh, write little apps, figure out what all the pieces did, and then just start doing huge. I was basically doing like, one class a day and sending in pull requests for that. Hmm. Um, so when people say Ember's hard to, to learn, I'm like, man, boy, do I have a story for you about Ember being hard to learn. So at <laughs> least now you have some documentation. Um, and so that was like the early time. Uh, there was a middle period of, of Ember where we were before 1.0, uh, and it was very hard to learn because being before 1.0, we're still sort of searching around for... Uh, what are the best patterns to put together web applications. Um, it's not like we, we sat up in Ivory Tower and thought about it deeply and then had all the patterns and just started writing them. Uh, it was a big experiment, um, like all software projects are, um, even past 1.0. And so uh, the API surface was just changing constantly. Um, we had, like, three different routers. Um, you know, the way, the way views interact changes the, everything from, like, the, uh, the lookup uh, context of a template Uh, where that target has changed over time uh, before 1.0. And so very hard to learn Ember there because there were sort of limited learning resources. Uh, The API was changing all of the time, Um, and and that's very, very tough to keep up with. And yet there were people who were having big successes with it, and so the community kind of suffered from um, big players like Zendesk uh, or Groupon or Tilda saying, like, you know, we've adopted this technology, and oh, my God, it's so much easier for us to work in applications now uh, coupled with people trying it and being going like this this is so hard i don 't there 's this massive gulf um, and that was sort of because of the api churn and in a lot of ways, I think we still suffer uh, from from sort of that early opinion that people had
0: um, and and then we we hit one o well I think uh, it de- so my own personal story on that is I think it delayed me by about twelve months because which, yes i think i was I was ready like if i if i sp- sort of survey my state of mind over the past 18 months. I think about 12 months ago, I was like probably ready to take on something like Ember, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have a tremendous amount of time to like go ultra deep end on something that was immature. And I had heard enough chatter, recent chatter as of a year ago about the issues you just outlined to say, ah, it's just not quite there yet. Like I I don't have the time to, to deal with that situation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. And so, so, you know, maybe 10 months ago would have been the ideal point for me to try. But I totally agree that there was this sort of this uh, uh, buzz.
1: Yep. And there's the you know, we I constantly worry that we lost an entire sort of generation of people, generations on the web being about a year long. Uh, <laughs> like, like, like fruit flies. Yeah, this exactly. is my
0: like bio class. An entire grade.
1: generation of people who will just never try Ember because they tried it before we hit one oh. Uh, there was just not a lot of learning resources. The API changed constantly, and they were like, this is horrible, I'm never coming back to it. And they jump ship to other frameworks. Um, but um, once we hit 1.0, uh, we are sometimes uh, painfully adherent to Sember. Um, so our promise for 1.0 um, is any, any actually defined public API, uh, we, we will not break. We can augment it, we can add new things to it, uh, but we will not break backwards compatibility from 1.0 all the way to 2.0. Um, so people and, and we see this play out really nicely. People have upgrade stories of like I upgraded from you know 1.2 to 1.8 and it took me 25 minutes. Um, and we when we deprecate things, we deprecate warnings. We tell you exactly uh, what you should be doing instead. Most of the changes are purely mechanical, um, so you can do these upgrades uh, fairly easily. Um, so so that the API surface has, has definitely stabilized in in 1.0, and the learning resources have gotten a lot better. Um, so learning sort of any project's learning resources, I, I sort of see them as a multi-front, uh, a multi-front problem uh, based on learning styles and um, skill level with the, with the framework itself. Um, the one that people usually tackle first is API documentation, um, which is probably not the thing that you want to have first in your framework. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe or maybe not. Um, API documentation is basically like a reference, right? So for someone who already gets the the gist of how it works... Uh, they just need to know, like, I have this object, what can it do? Um, or I, I think I need to call this method, what What does it return? Um, and so those are reference documentation, and that tends to be what people write first. Uh, so all my libraries, at the very least, have API documentation on them. Um, one le- level on top of that is more uh, structured guidance of, uh, you know, tell me everything about routing, or tell me everything about the object system. Um, not really focused on any particular object, but more... Um, how does this piece how does this module of the framework uh, interact with other modules and sort of how do you explore what can it do uh, and I think we have really good guides. We get uh, a ton of feedback on Twitter that our guides when people come look at them are among among the best documentation that they see
0: yeah, I think they're really good and I think I think what you said is accurate actually that the documenting the API first, even though it it's it's too low level if you're new to it, you kind of need that. Cause it, once you're, once you're beyond the hello world intro and you're actually writing, you know, an application, you need to be able to look up yep. the, the specific documentation. And it's, it'd be super frustrating if like the documents to get you to minute 90 were good. And then minute 91, it falls off a cliff. Yeah. That just, that'd make me crazy. And so the,
1: the problem with API documentation is it tends to be for a certain audience of like roll up their sleeves, really get into the source code minded people. Or already yep. experts, and when you're just starting out, you don't have already experts. You just have the sort of roll up your sleeve types. Um, and this is, I mean, this is true for everything. If if people who are listening remember very early days Rails, uh, you had the the Rails RubyDoc API, mm-hmm. uh, and then for like six months nothing, and then uh, a couple blog posts that were almost immediately out of date and and were bad practice. Uh, and then I remember there was a, a like booklet. I forget who did it might have been Jeffrey Grossenbach. It was like four days on Rails, hmm. and it was just like a, a more structured tutorial of writing a small Rails application. So, <clears throat> I mean, Rails luckily shipped pretty early on with the Agile Web Dev book, so there was like a little bit something more meaty to hold on to, but I mean, for day-to-day development and for teaching Rails, I, in, in grad school, I would teach programming and web programming using Rails. Um, in the early days, you, you basically had the API. And that was it you know the API docs right. um, and now the, I mean the rails guides projects are, are fantastic, but that was um, many people think of that as early day rails. I think of that as like oh man, way into the history of, of the framework <laughs> um, and then on top of that the so, so Rail, uh, API docs and guides I would say are like that covers probably 20 percent of developers uh, based on their learning su- style their skill level there's a huge number of developers who um, before they'll invest time in a thing need to, need to see the whole story, um, which I think is actually a, a perfectly reasonable uh, and cautious manner to adopt a technology. So just from looking at the API docs or just from looking at guides of, of major frameworks, and this is true of you know Django, Rails, Ember, um, many people looking at them would go like, uh, I don't see how this is better than what I'm doing right now. And the missing piece for most people is is third-party, longer articles uh, that do evaluation, do comparisons to uh, things other people might be familiar with, and then also takes you through the whole story of building an application. Um, And typically, those tend to come out of not the core team of people working on the framework. They tend to do API docs and guides. And then that third-party material uh, just takes time to come out. And for a long time, we just didn't have it. Um, But now we have a ton of stuff. There's a treehouse code school. There's a ton of blog articles. um, And because we're pretty committed to stability at 1.0, going all the way back to September 2013, everything you're reading back to then is still considered, you know, perfectly viable Ember knowledge.
0: I'd say, well, I I think that that's accurate except for Ember CLI, which I think is a not not small asterisk on that comment. Yes, that is very true.
1: So, for people who don't know, we uh, when we first made Ember, uh, there was no grunt, there was no gulp. Um, there, I think, may have been a very early version of Browserify. Um, there was just literally just no tooling around front side or uh, sort of client side code. Um, probably the best in breed at that point was the Rails Asset Pipeline, and uh, not to disparage people working on that, that's uh, pretty low bar. Um, I have found Asset Pipeline to be like nothing but frustration uh, when I first started using it. To be fair I'm, I'm a defender. Maybe so. it's better now, but in the early days, it just seemed really... I, the minute it was like, okay, and then we'll have JavaScript in a Ruby gem package, and that's how you get it into your project, uh, that just set off all sorts of alarm bells about bad architecture to me. Uh, but I think, I think at that point, I was, I was already non-standard enough Rails developer, uh, in the sense like I've, I rarely ever used view helpers, even form helpers. I found them just like Clue G, and it was easier for me to write HTML by hand. Um, but yes, Ember CLI, for, for people who don't know, uh, there was no tooling back when we started Ember. Um, and so everything is in a, in a globals mode, basically. Your application, uh, Ember ships as a global, you know, window, window.ember. Uh, your application lives as a global, window.whatever you choose your application name to be. And then uh, every object needed for your application lives in that namespace. Um, and that's how all the documentation is written. That's how our uh, Chrome plugin uh, is, expects things to work. And then we realized like this, this was like not untenable. Uh, the, the build story around JavaScript in the browser has gotten so much better. Uh, it's, time to, it's time to mature and, and have a thing that's a little more forward-looking. And so we came out with a command line interface uh, that will sort of structure and then build your application and do a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but those are sort of the main, main selling points early on. Uh, and yes, uh, that changes like where objects go, and so people have trouble figuring out. Uh, like this tutorial says, you know, this constant name, where does that go in a folder in my Ember CLI application?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a Ember CLI is is fantastic to use, but it, it it's just a whole of it's another thing. You know, yeah. it's a <laughs> it's a bit of a curveball, and I would think that that's the biggest. If if I was guessing, I think that 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 probably created another bubble of of. Well, I, th- I think it did two things. I think it probably has has gained momentum with some class of developer that really sort of wouldn't consider Ember without the build tools, mm-hmm. and it probably scared away some that are like, "Oh my god, too much churn again." Yep. You know, I'm not sure if I'm if I'm up for that. But but having come into it, I I think it was absolutely obviously the right the right call. Um, that's
1: good to hear. I was actually against the idea to start. Really? Um, yeah. So, so uh, Stefan Penner and uh, Robert Jackson are the two core team members that mostly work on that, or started it. And uh, Steph pitched it to me, and I was like, ah, shouldn't we use Yeoman or Lineman or one of the Grunt or like any of the existing tools? Like, do we really... Like, we already are creating a framework. Do we really want to get into the business of creating uh, a command line tool for it? Uh, and uh, seeing it now, I'm like, oh, well, this is like, this is just leagues above other command line tools. In fact, Lineman, uh, Justin Searles, who writes Lineman, um, he has has seen how nice Ember CLI is and has basically uh, abandoned Lineman. Uh, I don't know if that's a secret or not. Hopefully it isn't. Like, hopefully just, <laughs> not he's anymore. Working, he's working on a new project called Cabbage, uh, which is very much in the vein of, of Ember CLI. So it's Broccoli-based. Uh, Broccoli is a JavaScript. It's basically like the Rails asset pipeline, but in Node, um, and, and sort of focused around uh, just JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. Um, but it's a general purpose. You can you can stick it into a Rails project or a Python project. Mm-hmm. If. Um, and so Ember CLI uses Broccoli as our build pipeline, um, and Cabbage will also use build Broccoli as his build pipeline. And I'm trying to get uh, Justin and Steph to work together, because I would really like most of what Ember CLI is uh, to just be a generic uh, you know, build tools for uh, front end code. Um, that would replace things like lineman or Yeoman. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, the addition of Ember CLI, yeah, it's, it's constantly, there's constantly new stuff. Um, although I mean like, uh, our official, like we, we won't change the docs to use anything besides constant mode until we hit 2.0. Um, cause we, we can't break backwards compatibility. Um, and that's uh, a very important, uh, point for us basically. right.
0: Well, and those of us that are signing up to use Ember, I think have, are are doing so, or at least some portion of us are doing so, largely because of that promise. Like it yep. feels, it feels like a, a sort of critical negotiation with the community. Yep.
1: So one one fun wrinkle to that is we are uh, we're approaching 2.0. So I, I, I guess I can explain Ember's release process. Um, before one o, uh, it was you know willy nilly we do whatever we wanted, and you we were basically just stuck with what we decided. Uh, once we hit one o, we were guaranteed to not uh, sort of willfully break existing one Uh, you know, 1.x series uh, features. So those we're pretty dedicated to keeping out. And then we do a release every six weeks. Um, So we have, like, a Chrome or Rust style train release cycle. Uh, So the way new features get added is uh, people will submit a pull request and those will go behind the feature flag. Um, And that feature flag is off by default. It's in what we call Canary, or if you pull off GitHub, uh, you have, like, the Canary build. And that's, like, everything. And you can enable features as you like them. Um, And then... When we feel, we, every six weeks we do a go, no go vote on every feature. And when we feel a feature has been uh, in Canary for long enough and its API has solidified, uh, we'll give it a thumbs up. Um, and that'll get uh, turned on by default in beta. And then once it's good in beta, it'll get uh, turned, basically make it into master and be part of the stable 1.0 release. So we've, we do a release every six weeks. Generally, we've fallen short a couple times just because of uh, people getting busy. Right. Uh, but our uh, we have plans for a 2.0 um, coming out. Uh, there's no announced date because 2.0 will literally just be the point at which we get rid of everything that we said is deprecated will no longer be in 2.0. But every feature that lands in 2.0 will have been in a 1.x branch for some amount of time.
0: I just, so if, if anyone uh, is interested in learning more about this process, go and read the, do you know what the, the name of the GitHub pull request was? Like the road to Ember 2.0 or something like that?
1: Uh, yes. So if you go to our, uh, we have a repo on Ember.js. Uh, called RFCs, so mm. RFCs. It's pull request number fifteen. I keep it in my head because I refer to it all the time. It's um, so it's so good. We so we we spent about six months coming up with uh, what the plan for two always. Um, we we meet face to face about once a quarter, uh, and then we we spend you know all day in Slack chatting privately, and then all day in IRC chatting publicly um, about like what we wanted uh, and where we felt we could take the framework. And a lot of it is based on. Uh, lessons that we've learned from watching other frameworks uh, have a lot of success around patterns. Uh, so from Angular we saw their service pattern to be very, very successful, and realized a lot of the ways that certain parts of Ember behave would be just better as services, and so we have a plan to in, to introduce services. And then uh, React uh, React came out, and uh, for those who don't know React, its programming model uh, seems like it could never work performantly. Uh, basically, it's uh, so in in Ember, we track very specific portions of the DOM, and we have a property observation system. So if you have, uh, you know, a model and its foo property changes, we know exactly in the DOM where all the foos are referenced and we'll re-render them for you. And so we have this whole tracking mechanism. And as a result of that, you sort of have to, uh, you don't keep track of this yourself, the framework does it, but there's a certain programming style you have to do that is sort of adherent uh, to these this property observation pattern. And React uh, just said, forget all that, uh, basically change an object way up the object hierarchy and just let it re-render everything below it, um, which seems insane. And the, the, the missing piece, I think, in everyone's mind was uh, that the DOM is incredibly slow. Like, of all the APIs you're going to use in the browser, the DOM is probably the least performant one. Uh, it's also sort of the one you want to use the most to make things show up on the page. And So <laughs> yeah. they will, in JavaScript, they will keep what they call a, quote-unquote, virtual DOM, uh, that is basically a JavaScript object representation of the DOM. And they will do this sort of fake re-rendering through that. And then each of those f- pieces of that virtual DOM will know if they changed and will only trigger changes to the actual DOM if the virtual DOM would have had changes. And so you get to do neat things like you just have, you just, you just set a property and it will just magically re-render and there's no tracking inside the framework. Uh, that is ever exposed to the developer, and this this programming model is just so much simpler uh, than what ember have ember ends up having this sort of like living stateful map of re- interrelated objects uh, and and that turns out to be really hard for people to reason about
0: um, so uh, so let me ask like, mm-hmm. this, I may sound super stupid with this question, but what the hell so it, it the way that you made it sound is that the the old ember the current ember way um, is sort of like reference counting like it's like, like like you're explicitly sort of setting up and tearing down
1: yeah that's a, that's probably a good analogy for
0: it and then yeah. the react way is you know, sounds like now i know this is a worse analogy but it sounds like the garbage collection of re-rendering in, the, in
1: terms of yeah in terms of like uh incantations a developer needs to do then yes
0: yeah that's um, all i mean i don't mean yeah. that it literally is yeah so in ember when you have when you have a
1: property if it's based on the value of other properties, you must explicitly say that. Um, and we have a syntax for doing that. And React, you just don't need to do it. Um, you don't need to worry about dependencies like that because an object... Uh, so if you imagine an object comes from an, uh, an object comes from an AJAX request and then sub-portions of that object are used in sort of ever more specific uh, parts of the DOM. So like a parent maybe pulls off some of those and passes some on to its children, which pulls off some and passes on to their mm-hmm. children and so on and so on and so on. Uh in, in React, you would basically just emit an event up to anywhere in that hierarchy and be like, here's my new object. And everything below it will just re-render intelligently. Right. Um, and that is just like such a simplistic uh, programming model. And uh, it doesn't seem like it could be performant, but they've actually made it performant. And I think that's the piece that was like, oh, um, thanks for doing a bunch of R&D for us facebook because that's a way simpler way to do this it just didn't like at first blush i don't think anyone would assume this would work performantly and so we rejected it as an idea um, and moved on to property observation it's just so,
0: it's because the chat and the insight that they had was that you could make a shadow of the dom and pretty it, much yeah well
1: shadow dom is a is a separate term that we shouldn't cross because that's related to future browser specs they call it the virtual dom
0: okay gotcha but yeah they just
1: they do they do tracking Uh, of a DOM-like object outside of the actual DOM, which is a very slow API.
0: Gotcha. Uh, And it
1: turns out, you know, looping over objects in in arrays in JavaScript is very fast, uh, especially in modern modern browsers. Um, So we are implementing a much more... uh, We're basically adopting a virtual DOM and data flow model that is a lot of the ideas from React and greatly simplifies communication between uh, different parts of your application. So it'll be just like in in uh, in React. You'll you make an Ajax request. You will get some data in your route. Uh, your route will ran, render a sort of top level component, and it's that component's job to use the data or pass it to any child components, uh, any you know sub portions of that data to children components, and then those children components can have their own properties, or can pass along additional properties to their children, and so on, all the way up to the leaf nodes. And um, it's it's interesting because we found that like most Ember applications were actually written that way for the most part. Um, But because you could cheat and use data observation as like a very uh, quick and easy communication channel, people tended to abuse it when they should have been emitting an event and letting that sort of bubble up the hierarchy and then changing data and letting that bubble down through the rendered views.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've actually found myself sort of at first cheating with observing Things and then and then moving to the the action sort of pattern from there. I think that the uh uh the a key thing for me to to read in the Road to Ember 2.0 was the comments about moving to components for everything mm-hmm. because I think this that clarified the point to me quite clearly. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if that was the purpose or not, but,
1: but yeah, that's that's pretty much the so we have in Ember we have uh, we have routes which are responsible for basically uh, data fetching and arguably the router keeps track of sort of the the url and the query parameters uh and then there are views which i think are intuitive they're basically like well uh you know things render and they use a view and a template to render and then we have this thing in the middle which are controllers and the the purpose of controllers has never been super clear and in hindsight i think we're realizing that controllers were used for many different types of things um some of which are some behaviors are being pulled out into services um, and some of which are becoming part of how components work. And the missing piece is that very implicit, or sorry, very explicit data passing that occurs from the route data fetching down through the component hierarchy. Um, right. And it just it it makes things very very easy to understand. It makes things very easy to understand in isolation. So if you have a component, uh, it, it you can very you can think of a component like a function. A function has uh, var statements, so it has you know data local to itself. And it has arguments that were passed into its function call, and that's it. That's all the data it has access to. And so you can look at a you can look at a function, and you know, barring people doing clever things with, uh, with um, you know, sort of JavaScript's fun scope, uh, you know exactly the data you have to work with. So it's very easy to unit test a function. Um, It's very easy to fully understand everything that's going on with a function. Um, and so we're, we're, it's much more JavaScript-y, and I think that's a better pattern for writing in JavaScript. Yeah,
0: I totally agree. I mean, I described to someone the other day that I liked components because they're, it's functional and super easy to reason about.
1: Yep. Right. And so that's, that's a big change. And for that change to happen, uh, we basically have to change all of Ember from doing two-way data binding to one-way data binding. So two-way data binding um, basically means that, um, <clears throat> and to be clear, most binding in Ember in practice is, is one-way. Um, you have data; it renders to the view. That data will update, and the view knows to update itself. Um, but uh, components or views can also mutate data, and people were using that as a communication challenge because of the two-way da- data binding. So, if you have uh, an HTML element and then you change a property on it, that changes it in the you know the source object and everywhere that source object was being referenced as a, as like a path, and so it became very easy to seem like you're making very sensible decisions and not realize. Somewhere were way in another part of your application that some other developer, maybe someone on another team was working on. Uh, they would never expect that piece of data to change all of a sudden underneath them, and you were able to do it. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting rid of that. Uh, you, can, you can opt into it. There are some places where two-way day way data binding makes a ton of sense. Uh, so if you imagine, and React has this, has this exact same uh, use case, uh, a text field. Uh, you don't want to have to trigger an event on every character. And then go up to some data object and be like, "Your old value is fo, and now it's foo." And then watch that bubble all the way down. Um, that's a case where you just want those two values to always be in sync. Mm-hmm. And so we'll have a way to specifically say uh, this property is mutable. Um, and so just to the developer uh, consuming and the developer authoring this component, they will know that like it, it may change it. And that's basically uh, the approach that uh, a part of React called react.link Link uh, has. Right. So the interesting thing, it seems so uh, controllers are basically going away. Um, Routes are now rendering components. There's only one-way data binding, uh, which sound like massive changes. Uh, You would expect it to be uh, like there to be no upgrade path from an Ember 1.0 app to an Ember 2.0 path. Uh, But part of why this took us six months to really suss out and plan is we are committed. Because we do these six-week incremental releases, we can't do a big rewrite. Um it's just not possible to do a huge like we can't write a framework in six weeks. Um, and so we for every new thing we're doing, we're, there is a migration path from the current patterns. Um, so we, we we have termed this uh, stability without stagnation, basically. so we we intend to move the framework forward, um, but also in a way that allows it to uh, you, you to transition from one o app. So like f- feel perfectly comfortable writing a Ember one X app. Um, there will be a way to go to Ember 2.0. It'll be mostly mechanical changes.
0: So I've been so into this conversation that I forgot to read a sponsor so far. Oh, do it. <laughs> I'm going to do it right now. We have we have two, so here's here's one of them. Uh, first sponsor today is Codeship. Uh, Codeship's a free continuous delivery service that's really simple to use. They offer 100 builds per month for five private projects for free. The whole product also has a big focus on usability and is very easy to use. Uh, You can set up continuous integration in a few easy steps, and your software will automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. Codeship has great support for multiple languages and test frameworks. Uh, I actually just set up uh, my first Ember project on Codeship the other day. Super simple. Uh, You can easily integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket for code hosting, deploy to cloud services or your own servers. You can start off with their free plan, it's only going to take you about three minutes to set up, go to code slash five by five Ruby and use the offer code five by five Ruby. You'll get 20% off any plan for three months. You can also check out their blog at blog.codechip.com to get updates. Uh, I am a, uh, a paying user of code chip and like the service quite a bit. So I uh, encourage you to give it a shot again. Thanks to uh, CodeShip for sponsoring the show. Okay. So, um,
1: we were ostensibly we were talking about learning Ember. Yes, yeah, <laughs> like so we sidetracked.
0: Well, no, it was good. So I've got uh, one way to close off that part of the conversation, and I've got a, a sort of another topic to. to awesome. Well, so I have a end. comment about a learning, and
1: I think uh, feel I, I would I would say to anyone listening, feel totally safe and comfortable using any of the really good existing learning resources out there. Uh, the knowledge you gain right now totally applies to Ember Two O. It'll be a very easy migration. So don't feel like oh, because Ember Two O is coming out, I should hold off until that. Um, I jump right in right now if it's an appropriate place based on your technology plans.
0: Yeah, I really, I, I, I was reassured by the way that it, it's been described and you described it this way too, that every six weeks there is a new release and one of them will be 2.0. Like okay. that, 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 that takes all of the sort of scariness away. Yeah.
1: So the the litmus test we have is that you should be able to do a, a dot release in Ember uh, with a single developer and a single sprint at worst.
0: Right. Cool. So uh, on the guides, since you talked about them a lot, I actually, so my sort of learning Ember strategy was the first or maybe the second thing that I did. I think that I watched the uh, the video from mm-hmm. Tom where he does his you know blog example in Ember, which may be part of the guides, actually. Mm-hmm. But then I just read the guides from front to back. Before I had touched a piece of code, because they read kind of like a book. I don't know if that's. I'm sure that must have been the goal.
1: Yeah, that was the d- the design of them.
0: And it's great. I mean, it's uh, it's it's fascinating to me that you can go spend you know forty bucks for a book on Ember, you know, or read the guides for free. And the guides are pretty easily the best book that I've seen on Ember. Um, yeah,
1: we I mean, we designed them that way, and unfortunately, it's uh, not. That's not everyone's learning style. That's my learning style. I feel I only feel comfortable sort of taking dipping a toe into a technology when I've read a lot about it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that means I just have to read the source code because there's not a lot to read about it. But I, I don't feel comfortable using a technology until I feel like I have a really good understanding of how all the pieces fit together. Um, and so that strategy of, like, I'll just read everything out there is, I think, totally viable. There are a lot of people who prefer to just, like, I'm just going to start programming. Tell me what to type and I will start. And, uh, and for them, uh, sometimes we don't have great resources for them because they really want uh, we get constant requests for Rails style guides, um, which are more like exhaustive in a topic. So if you look at like the Rails routing guide, mm-hmm. um, it I mean you know it covers like everything you can possibly do with routing. And if you look at our routing guide, it's very much like uh, here's generally how routing works. And I think for the people that want that exhaustive uh, exploration of a topic, we just we just don't have it quite yet. And I think the the plan we have right now is to move that sort of exhaustive study into the API documentation.
0: Um, we just need to need to do it. And, and I think some of the API documentation feels that way now, and some doesn't. Yes, and so that's the other problem. We, we have a couple of problems
1: with the guides. Um, you know, too many cooks. <laughs> just ruined you guys for life. Um, <laughs> and so we, we've lost a consistent voice. Uh, initially, it was mostly me and Tom Dale. And so it was very easy to keep a single voice, a single pattern, uh, a single sort of narrative arc through the whole guides. And as we've gotten more contributions, which is obviously great and an open source project lives and dies by its contributions, Um, a lot of that voice has been lost and a lot of the sort of narrow focus has been lost. So if you look at, like, the testing guide uh, or the configuring Ember guide, those are the sort of longer... Uh, sort of full, full exploration guides, as opposed to the more focused uh, "just get me started" guides.
0: Yeah, you know, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have criticized the guides because I liked them so much <laughs> and relied on them so much. But if you had like asked me to, I would have, I would have totally said the same thing that they're a little inconsistent. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's that's very, very hard to do. Um, and the, the nice thing is, so I, I, I have an English literature degree. I do technical writing and non-technical writing all the time. Uh, now that we have a lot of examples about how people will tend to write, uh, I think we can come up with a style guide that shows them how they should be writing and give examples of like, don't do this. Instead, say this. Right. Um, and that should make it a little easier to maintain a consistent style and voice.
0: So let's let's chat about the topics that are trickiest for most new Ember developers to get used to. Because sure. I've I've got a. I sus- like, for me, at least, I think there were a couple of missing items in the guides that were my like, uh, hurdle, okay. <laughs> to my, my high hurdle. But I'm interested in, in what your experience okay. is, sort of hearing the community, sort of learn Ember and what the concepts are that are trickiest to get their heads around. Mm-hmm.
1: So I've, um, I've also done uh, both inside Groupon and outside Groupon. Uh, I've trained a lot of people on Ember. Oh, so
0: okay, So I've done
1: great. Uh, probably eight training sessions now. Um, anywhere from a one-day training session, I think, and then we had a three-day training session somewhere. Um, So I've done a lot of training, and I've taken a lot of approaches. And uh, uh, controllers are very confusing for people, Um, so I'm glad that they're going away. Probably the most confusing part for people is how routing works and relates to view uh, or template hierarchies. Uh, That seems to be the, the most confusing part, because it's so different from a stateless application like Rails. Uh, Where in Rails, like, the URL doesn't really reflect. uh, So if you have a nested URL in Rails, you typically uh, have nested templates, but it's done by having a layout object and then a single template. Mm -hmm. Or, I guess, a Rails view. Um, In Ember, you can have Rails, or you can have Ember templates nesting infinitely deep. And they reflect uh, sort of the URL hierarchy as well. And so getting people to understand that, like, You've you've entered a route, but only a small portion of the page is going to re-render, and how that ties to the route hierarchy seems seems tricky. Uh, the way we've gotten around it in training is we basically focus only on that relationship for the first part, to the point where it's incredibly boring, and people are like, "Okay, can we move on? I get it." Um, and then and then we move on to the next topic. But I, I would love to hear what your your pain points have been.
0: Yeah. So I actually thought the description. I remember where I read it. Maybe it was in the guides about. I could imagine the index uh, route and template being a, a sort of stumbling block in that category or that sort of topic that you just mentioned. Because I think that it, it can be a little bit tricky sort of what exactly is the hierarchy of, of what is... Because Ember generates a lot of code that's not there. Yep. And I think it can be a little bit of a curveball when you're like, wait a second, like what what created this thing I'm looking yeah. at? Is yeah. it something I wrote? Is it something that it wrote? What What is it? Uh, I actually didn't stumble on that that much because I thought that I must have read something that very clearly hmm. articulated it. But I could imagine stumbling on that pretty heavily. Um, so I, here's my first one. I think uh, dealing with promises
1: mm.
0: is far and away the trickiest thing about dealing with Ember for me. Um, so, so in, in particular, most of the, I'd say all of the relationships in in, in the uh, application that I'm thinking about are, are loaded asynchronously. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't clear to me at first sort of what was a promise and what wasn't a promise. Yes. And therefore, like, what could I depend on existing and what didn't like, you know, what didn't exist, especially given that you can treat the promise like it is the thing that it's ultimately being fulfilled by. Mm-hmm. and holy cow, I mean, I, I bet 50 more, more, more than 50% of the time that I burned during my sort of learning process was some version of there's a promise that I didn't realize was going to be a promise or didn't understand how to make sure um, was resolved before something else happened.
1: Yep, so you're, you're talking about, uh, so for those listening, we have, we have a library maintained by a lot of core team members that is not part of core yet, uh, and that's Ember Data. And that's the sort of data modeling. You can think of it as a little bit like ActiveRecord. Um, that's the data modeling and fetching library. And yes, uh, I think the people that work on Ember Data have, have admitted many times that the, uh, that having relationships be sync or async was a horrible idea. Uh, they should basically always be asynchronous. They should
0: always be async. I, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Th- that that's the pull my hair out moment. I'm like, yeah. why is it possible for this thing not to be async? So
1: so Ember Data has not yet hit 1.0, so its API is still is still changing. And uh, either the current release or the next release uh, has undone that. All relationships are now asynchronous. They all work exactly in an asynchronous way. Some of them might be asynchronous, but resolve immediately because you happen to have the data. But yeah, sure. staying with that same pattern of like. It, so so my, my hope for Ember 2.0 um, and whatever, like Ember CLI, Ember Data, uh, the animation library, the Liquid Fire, um, whatever gets rolled into core is that there's a very simple rule for everything. Um, and right now we have sometimes sort of nuanced behavior. Uh, and it's nuanced behavior that evolved over time. Um, and so you like, you start with one thing and you add the next thing and you add the next thing and every step seems logical as you're making it. And then you look back in hindsight and you're like, this whole thing is horrible. (laughs) What were we thinking? Uh, (laughs) And that's, that's basically how the async or sync relationship stuff was like at the time, every one of the decisions we made that went to that seemed totally reasonable and it played out to just be a bad idea. And so, uh, we, we are, we are changing it. So the simple rule there will be all relationships are asynchronous.
0: Yeah. And then I think the, and this may be my, you know, relative, um, you know, lousy skills at JavaScript, but, uh, getting used to sort of when I had, like, even if w- once I knew I was dealing with a promise, so that was sort of like question one, which is what is this thing and the tooling around knowing what this thing is, is, is at least unless I'm missing something, not super obvious. Um, but anyhow, then once I even know that there are promises, like what is the idiomatic way to make sure that the the sort of hierarchy of these things all resolve before doing a thing yeah. um it took me like I understand how to do it now but yeah. the the documentation around how to use RSVP was was at least for me not quite there
1: yeah we we constantly fight this battle we um so Yehuda Yehuda Cats is on uh you know Rails core and jQuery core is on TC39 which basically sets the standard for what uh, TC39, for those who don't know, is technical... Uh, what's the name of the thing? Technical something number 39. It's basically like the 39th technical committee right. of, of, uh, of ECMA. And they're responsible for basically designing JavaScript. And uh, as a consequence of that, I think the Ember core team is exposed to... New and upcoming JavaScript features way before the typical JavaScript developer. So promises to us, we've been doing forever, uh, and you know promises are I think they're native in Chrome now. Um, and I, I think we lose we lose sight of the fact that like um, promises and and like the ES6 module system are just like not patterns the typical developer has ever encountered. And so in our minds, we're like, well, it's not our job to educate on those. Those are just JavaScript. Um, the pushback, and I think the the perfectly valid pushback is. Yeah, that's just JavaScript, but it's such new JavaScript uh, that you basically have to show people how it works at this point. Um, in five years, like using promises will be as intuitive to people as using callbacks because so many places will be doing it. But for now, it is yeah, it's a it's a major learning hurdle. Every like even the ES6 module s- syntax, we get questions about just because people haven't encountered it before and it's very confusing for them.
0: I mean, I think as a sort of a stopgap, it wouldn't be unreasonable to right now in the guides just say. Hey, if you're using Ember Data and are asynchronously loading relationships, which many people would be, mm-hmm. then like read the following. Even if it's not an Ember thing, like make sure you get um, like for me, it was promise chaining and then RSVP all or hash. Like, yep. and the promise chaining was not you know so the then chaining like this, then mm-hmm. blah, then blah, then blah, and you have you know this this tree of that. And man, that. I think to your point, that was new to me cause I hadn't used it in JavaScript before and felt in hindsight, like it would have been not a bad idea to, to sort of let me know that there was this like other course I should go take as a prerequisite.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's really tough for us to figure out what those topics are going to be. Um, and so, right. yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, you know, let either, you know, let us, let me know how we can help you get that pull request in. Or uh, if there's someone who's listening right now that would like to work on that, like, reach out to me. Um, I'm Trek, T-R-E-K on Twitter and GitHub. Uh, I will happily point you in the direction for how we can get that data in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was not me p- uh, p- uh, punting this to you. I'm saying th- this <laughs> is what I've been, like, realize. like, I'm yep. just reflecting in preparation for our conversation about what was tricky, and in the last week, this one was tricky. Um,
1: and it's, it's interesting, because I feel like, uh, so React is moving to ES6 classes, uh, Angular 2.0 is re- is moving to their superset of TypeScript um, like all of the frameworks are, are very much pushing the bleeding edge of, of JavaScript as a language and JavaScript as a as an ecosystem. Um, a, a lot of this burden is going to fall to the frameworks um, because they're early adopters of technologies that people are unlikely to have, have to encountered before. Um, and it's it's it puts us in an interesting situation because if we if we waited, um, you know, a year, we wouldn't have to explain these things. Like other, you know, other people would have learned them as they learn about you know what cool things are coming out in JavaScript. Um, and so it's, it's it's a constant battle of figuring out, like, how much, like, it, so if we put a guide like that in now, two years from now, it will be like, why are they explaining this? Right. This is like, it would be like if we were explaining variables or callbacks. Like, this doesn't need to be explained. Except even even to people who are new to JavaScript, like, how variable scoping works in JavaScript, I could totally see us needing to explain that to people.
0: I think for me, if I, I needed to, I, I think I can spot where this is likely the problem right now. Mm-hmm. And at first I couldn't. And I don't think that the framework was saying like, Hey, uh, uh, like this thing involved a promise FYI. Right. Like if it just said this thing involved a promise FYI, yeah. I think I actually would have figured most of it yeah. out pretty quick. And part of, part of that is
1: our documentation because so many things like the model hook on a route can either return a value or return a promise. And so, like, uh, that's another one of those places where I just want to be like, no, the rule is you return a promise.
0: Return a promise. Always,
1: forever. And if you happen to have the value, there is a way to make a promise that it resolves instantaneously. And now it's just a promise moving forward. Um, But, yeah, it's, I mean, like, I would say one great thing to do for you and for anyone who's in a sort of similar learning uh, period, uh, either in Ember or anything, like, uh, you, you have just the right insight to give very, very good feedback. Um, someone who's just starting out usually their feedback is like, "Oh, I, I did a thing that I thought would work and it didn't." And everyone, the thing that I thought worked and didn't is different for everyone. And so there's really no way to solve that unless you want to litter your documentation with like, "Note, you know, if you don't do this, this will happen. Note, if you do this, this will happen." Um, and it just makes the narrative really hard for anyone who doesn't encounter those problems. But you and and people at that sort of learning level are at, at the exact place. Where you 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 kind of can peer through the general landscape, it's still maybe a little foggy, but you know enough to point to like, oh god, this would have been so useful for me to have uh, as I was walking through this. Um, so it's like in, invaluable feedback to people who write documentation.
0: Yeah, I think you're right that this is a good point because like I I definitely know enough to know the stupid mistakes that I, if I make one, yep. but I don't think that I don't think that dealing with promise chaining and resolving is one of those. I think that's like a fundamental trick, like yep. you know. N- of people that hit it are going to get a little stumped. I think polymorphic relationships while we're at it Mm -hmm. is another one. I think this may just be that things are new. I mean, I I should have submitted um, a pull request this past week for figuring some things out, but the documentation is ultra thin on polymorphic relationships and the, when they break, it's unbelievably unclear why it broke. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I this don't know is, if that's your take or not, but man. This is
1: essentially just the uh, the nature of, of beta software. So Ember, this is all Ember data-related stuff, and Ember data is still not released. And so the API changes, uh, they've settled down a lot, but people are not very excited to document a thing that is gone in three weeks. Right. Um, and so that's the tough... I, I, so I would say, like, um, one important point that I think we don't hammer enough in the Ember documentation is you don't need Ember data. Uh, a vast majority of applications and even a- applications that use Ember data, there are portions of this, of their application where like dollar Ajax is, is good enough. Um, that's basically all you need. I've, I've written entire applications that just use um, dollar Ajax basically.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I get that. Like, I think if I, it's an interesting thing to reflect on. So if I measured the time it took to write this app that I'm working on right now, Mm-hmm. And said, if I had just gone dollar Ajax, um, the whole way mm-hmm. and compared that to using Ember data, which one would have gotten me here quicker? And would there be a quality call it quality neutral? Right. You know, which one would have gotten me here quicker. And I think dollar Ajax would have gotten me here quicker, but. Yeah. But I don't at at
1: this point, I think that that calculus is going to change significantly in the next six months.
0: Yeah. Which is why I didn't go dollar Ajax. I said, you know, this is this is the part of the experience that I'm going to consider to be my early adoption. And I'm going to bite the bullet on it now. Yep. Um, But but it's interesting that the top three sort of tricks or trips that I've had. Uh, have all been Ember data related?
1: Yep, it's. I mean, that is just reflecting how uh, new and still beta that software is. Uh, it's funny. I so I don't. I don't work on Ember data. Um, it's not part of the framework that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Just because, um, for most of what I write, Dollar Ajax gets me ninety percent of the way there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I I sort of perceive Ember data as as an outsider would. Um, and and I've been watching it evolve. It's becoming much more solid. And I think the. The sort of like early key misstep was thinking of it like an ORM when it's just not. Um, It's just a it's a very different beast. And and I think that like I think they finally found like a sort of internal narrative to hold in their head that makes the story moving forward for how Ember Data evolves very clear. Um, And I think that will lead to it just being a really really good uh, software. Uh, And then we've we've also had a core team member Igor. Um, who basically works stop on this. And so it's, it's improving, like most open source projects, they improve just through attention and he's been giving it, uh, an unbelievable amount of attention. So Ember data has been improving leaps and bounds.
0: Well, I love the idea of it. I mean, I love the idea that. Like for me, I wouldn't think of it as an ORM. I think of it as like a, as a standard way to chat with an API mm-hmm. and that's nice, right? That's super, super nice. Um, yeah. It's just that, you know, when you get, at least I've found so far, when you get off the road somehow, either through your fault or the fault of something else, yep. getting back on the road is not as easy as it is everywhere else. Yeah, it's, it is a monumental problem. So actually, I mean, even as a
1: standard way of communicating with an API, um, I mean, there's no, there are a few attempts to do this, but there's really no standard way to expose JSON uh, through URLs. There are very few, I mean, there's a, a lot of patterns. And the combinatorial effect of those is there is essentially an infinite number of ways to organize an API. So imagine if you had to write an ORM, but instead of having SQL, uh, right. every, every right. database exposed its own way of querying and inserting data. Uh, like writing a single library that would do that would be just a, a monumental task. And that is essentially what Ember Data had to do.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. So I, I decided for reasons similar to this that I was going to adopt the JSON API Mm-hmm. sort of standard because it seemed like that's so critical i'm like okay if i go with a standard then it's going to make it easier for me because all these decisions are are already made and then it should be easier to work with tooling like ember data because you know that's a standard but the <laughs> it, well and i think that that is at least in theory a good choice yes I think in practice, there are so many should and maze in JSON API that you can't really count on it as the standard. Yep. And then and just this, this week on Twitter, I saw chatter about how yep. they're getting rid of that and going mostly to must. And thank goodness, have, having yes. now built an app on top of it. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. Now that, I mean, it's, those shoulds and maze existed because it was like, oh, this seems like a thing you might want to do. Um, and it becomes very clear through usage uh, what stuff just has to be required. Um, to make to make to make interactions work in, in some predictable way, and so that's yeah that that tweet was like heartwarming. I'm like okay, yeah. finally. Well, it was tough because Ember Data and the JSON API spec that Ember Data tries to talk to are both in, evolving at the same time with a different set of people, and so it's just like this constant catch up of uh, you know one library chasing after another, and then you know dog chasing its tail sort of thing going on.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. You saw that same tweet that I did. (laughs) Yes. Oh man, it felt good. I hope, you know, I don't know which way they're going, but I hope that the way they go is that, um, uh, kind of like the async should be everything that if you sideload the, um, anything in the response or provide the resources, the linked resources, that you just do it at the root level in a separate object that can be loaded in. Yeah, because that's like when you use it, you're like, no, no, no! D- don't pollute up the actual resource with the other resources. That's a it seems like a massive anti-pattern to me.
1: Yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, even even just starting something like JSON API, um, the 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 API constraints for writing a, a client application, and this can be you know iOS, desktop, Android, whatever. The data that you need is so different than I think the way that traditional Rails developers develop they tend to do sometimes overly nested URL structures. Um, and that like yes. pre- that presupposes uh, a series of interactions that occur in a particular order. And uh, that may be the case for your Rails app that you wrote, and it is probably not the case for a third-party iOS application that someone is writing. And so uh, it's been a battle to get people to see that, like, yeah, the way we've been writing APIs in the past five or six years is like not optimal for client applications. Client applications uh, one really want to, as flat a hierarchy as possible. Right. If I have a if I have a unique identifier, especially if it's a UUID, I shouldn't have to walk through what the API developers think of as its quote unquote owner object. If I have a UUID, I should be able to just get that object.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I mean, once you start, I think to your point, once you start. Writing an application where the API is split from the the web client, it became becomes clear as day that you just want the resource to provide back its relationships as IDs.
1: Yes, oh
0: or as an or as a URL. So one of,
1: the, one of the APIs I've seen probably do this the best is uh, RDO. If you ever get a chance to play with Ardo's API, um, it's not really REST style. It's kind of RPC. But the the key point of it that I like the most is. Uh, you everything has a unique ID. They happen to use probably the database primary key and then string identifiers. So if it's a song, it's S. If it's an artist, it's A. Yeah. Um, but you can ask for any of these. You can ask for like, give me these ten songs, this one artist, these four albums in one request, and they just come back. And they all have the relationships as just those identifiers. And so you can very quickly walk an object graph and get all the data you need in just like two or three requests, and then build up sort of any API that you need to. Um, it's, it's very like their API is like so non-standard and yet like was a dream to work with huh. any, any data object I needed was like one, maybe two requests away.
0: So I think J- is like my vision for JSON API is that it in, like sort of pushes this as the standard instead of trying to accommodate um, what I consider to be more the old rail style of like yep. provide back the resource and its children as was envisioned by the page. Yep. All right, let me do our second sponsor, since we've gone super long. Go for it. Okay. The second sponsor today is Mandrill, uh, another service that I personally use. Mandrill is a scalable, reliable, and secure email infrastructure service. They started as an idea in 2010, uh, came to be a reality in 2012, 12 made up uh, of a crew of MailChimp's best engineers. I always feel bad for MailChimp's other engineers when I read that line. <laughs> it's like you know, just the good (laughs) good guys went over. (laughs) Mandrill is now the largest email as a service platform in the market with more than 300,000 active customers. You can use Mandrill to send automated one-to-one email, uh, emails like password resets, welcome messages, or marketing emails and customized newsletters. It's quick to set up, easy to use, and very stable. They made it for developers who love documentation, integrations, high delivery rates, webhooks, and analytics. So if you are Not comfortable with code and APIs. They did not build this exactly for you. You've got to find someone who is before you get started. It does uh, does come with a beautiful interface, flexible template options, custom tagging, and advanced tracking and reports. It's the only email infrastructure service with a mobile app that lets you monitor delivery and troubleshoot from wherever you are. It's also powerful, scalable, and affordable. Don't take my word for it. You can sign up at mandrill.com. That's M-A-N-D-R-I-L-L.com with promo code 5x5, and you'll receive 50,000 free email sends per month for the first six months. Thanks to Mandrill for sponsoring 5x5 and the Ruby on Rails podcast. Okay. I think that, sort of wrap up the sort of Ember data conversation, I think that Ember is in an interesting position as it relates to Ember data. Tell me more. Because it's, I think, I sort of understand the position, which is like, hey, uh, Ember is well past 1.0 on its way to two o, and has is, is sort of stable and, and has a bunch of things you can depend on. And then they say, well, but Ember data is not quite there yet, so use at your own risk, though it's getting close to 1.0. But for uh, um, someone like me who is who, who decided to build an app that, that went rails for the server side and then a hard split that, that doesn't have any um, website whatsoever, HTML side whatsoever, and was going to do the entire then uh, web client as well as other application and integration clients separately that, that having Ember data be a little uh, in flux makes the whole thing feel in flux. And I don't. I don't know what to do about that. Like it seems like they. It seems like the team does a pretty good job of holding up that sign. Like it's not like I felt like I wasn't warned. Um, and Ember data is far enough along that I feel like it'd be short-sighted if I didn't go down that path. Uh, but the combination of of sort of the current non one zero state of Ember data plus the non one zero state of JSON API made that part of the road rocky um, for me.
1: Yep. I mean that's a pretty accurate reading of the situation. Um, we. So the, so the Ember core team is, I think, 11, 12 people now. Um, and we, we have constant disagreements. And that is a, a consequence of the core team not being a monoculture. And, and Yehuda, as he was building the core team, specifically said, like, I want people of, who, who are geeked about different things. So I'm very geeked about documentation, public API, good warnings, uh, good error messages. That's kind of like where I put the most pressure on. Other people are really geeked about build tools. Some people are really geeked about data. And so we butt heads all the time. Um, and, I, and, and and through that, we eventually reach consensus on things. And that consensus, I think, will ultimately lead to a better product. Uh, it's slower. It's much, much slower. Uh, sometimes frustratingly slower. But I think in the long run, it leads to something really, really solid. And so, yeah, you've. I mean, like, I have been sort of, like, We should distance ourselves as much from Ember data as possible. It's not done yet. It reflects poorly on the framework as a whole. And the Ember data push back, and people push back and be like, yeah, but, like, the kind of applications that people are going to be writing, not so much now as people are just getting used to this client-server divide, but a year from now when they realize, oh, there's all these problems you just can't solve with just dollar AJAX. Uh, like we, we have to have a story at that point. Um, we can't leave them hanging. And so like we need to bring Ember data into core so that it gets all the love and attention it needs. Um, and that, that fight has been going on for almost like a year and a half, two years now. Uh, but I think we're close to the, the resolution of it. I'm, I'm much more bullish in Ember data now than I was even
0: six months ago. Well, now that I'm through it, this this applies to a lot of things in life. Now that I'm through the toughest part of that learning curve, I'm really happy that I did that. this mm-hmm. now. Like, cause I feel like I've got a good reasonably good at least understanding of of um well certainly json api and the yep. the trade-offs that are being, ma- being made there and its relationship which is is actually quite like understanding the json api philosophy and the various paths they could go down helped me understand um ember data and how it would think about things which yeah. I, uh, was have interesting you
1: ever, have you ever played with meteor js before
0: no, I had um, I had Josh Owens on, who's part of that sort of community, and he talked to me about it. Yeah, the, the sort of the shtick of the episode. This was before I decided to dive into Ember. Was like sell me on meteor, mm-hmm. and he obviously didn't because I went Ember. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. I don't really. The whole. Uh, it, I I didn't respond like it, to the the meteor. Yeah. Uh, pitch it doesn't doesn't make sense to me
1: it doesn't make sense to me either, but when you play with meteor it's a quote unquote it just works is amazing um, like it like from server to client you feel like you're programming in one unified environment you would never end up with these areas where it's like oh the server doesn't quite do what I need and the client does this and it becomes you know like a lot of glue code to make them work together um, and and I, they nailed that out of the park I think they did an excellent job on that. Uh, the problem there being, like, well, but then what about the iOS application? Or what if I can't deploy Node? Like, my company is, has standardized on, on JVM, so we use Scala. Um, what do you do then? Like, that, then you're like, well, now I just sort of sort of have a meh client-side framework and, and Scala on the back end. And I think um, the, the, the json API approach specifically is, is an attempt to make this, like, that center area between server and client uh, a, a standard unified thing so that like, you can swap out your backends. You can start with Rails, and then you know Rails doesn't scale, and then move to Java. And, and you're, you're, as long as you're here to the JSON API, your client-side application doesn't need to change. Or conversely, you start with Rails, you're emitting JSON according to the spec, and you decide Ember's too heavyweight. Uh, it's not modular enough. I'm going with Angular. And, and you shouldn't need to rewrite your server. And I think that's like that sounds like a, a magical dream world that I, I hope we hit next year.
0: Well, I think that I think that the seeing the API interface as the the the, the sacred thing, mm-hmm. you know, is. I mean, this is sort of like I'm not exactly like a um, an architect astronaut, but you know, this is sort of like open close principle, right? I mean, the the yes. the idea that of Meteor is like exactly what I have moved on from with Rails, and I think Rails is perfect as my server. Like, I love it, and mm-hmm. especially if I don't need to scale to some ungodly level or don't need, you know, um, wicked response, uh, response time on lots of little requests. Like it's good for me, but that doesn't mean that I want to have the, the use of that application coupled to the application itself. And Meteor just sort of rotated that problem, you know? So it's like the same problem I had before, but now instead of, you know, having a good server generated app, I've got a, you know, this good hybrid deal. It just doesn't work for me.
1: But uh, I mean, hopefully, hopefully the 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 thing that people do really like about Meteor that it just works um, will be a thing that anyone can get with any client or server library combination in the
0: near future. Yeah, I mean, I like its existence because it pushes Ember yes. to integrate, you know, Ember data, and it pushes JSON API. Or I think it pushes Ember to work with JSON API to really nail that spec. Like, I like what it does to the world. I just wouldn't actually pick it myself. <laughs> Same here. Well, i uh, i to- I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation.
1: Me too. This was great. I uh, I apologize for talking long. Everyone who knows me knows that I will I will talk forever without stopping unless someone tells me to stop.
0: So you're saying this th- your your interest in talking was not unique to this episode. No, I will.
1: I will, <laughs> do, you want, do. You want to go for another hour and a half? I got, I got the time.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, I I felt like a, I felt like this is perfect. Um, awesome. And uh, I am. I'm excited actually to dive into future episodes about Ember because it's, uh, it's just, it's so much fun to be into right now. Pretty cool. All right, Trek. Well, uh, thanks for the time.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. I, I hope you buy all your, your gifts at SkyMall this year. <laughs> through,
1: no, I'm, I'm checking Groupon first.
0: <laughs> through through Groupon <laughs> purchase certificates. All right. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye.